Well, let's pray. Lord, we ask you to open our hearts to receive your word and to give us the words to say uh, that need to be said tonight. Open our hearts in the name of Jesus. We give you praise and glory and honor for it now. And for all these four evenings and the morning sessions, Lord, I pray that 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 which is needful will come forth, that we'll say what you want us to say, what needs to be said. Uh, uh, We look to you for that. We ask you for that together. We ask it, Father, in the name of Jesus, that we'll hear the words uh, of the gospel that we need, that we need to hear. And we thank you, Father, for utterance. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Appreciate all of you coming out tonight uh, in this rainy weather. We uh, are privileged to be here at Whitefields and privileged to be ministering to Word of Faith Assembly Family Christian Center, Whitefields and other uh, churches that are represented here and and ministers of the gospel. Uh, My wife and I have been in ministry about 30 years, not counting our time before Bible school, but since Bible school, we've been in ministry about 30 years. And um, as, as Pastor Peter shared, we uh, were in Russia. We were in subarctic Russia for about six and a half, six years, and the Russian Far East for six years, and mm-hmm. Singapore for 15 years now. We just marked 15 years. And uh, during that time, we did church planning, pastored, and uh, actually have been involved with about nine Bible schools from Arctic Russia to South India over. Uh, the course of our ministry. At one time, we were overseeing seven uh, Bible schools in Southeast Asia, three in uh, Malaysia, uh, two in India, one in Singapore, and one in in Russia. But in 2017, we turned a corner. We pivoted. Uh, it was a major transition in our ministry, just like uh, our time in Alaska was a, was a major phase. I, I, I refer to Alaska as the cradle of our ministry. We were birthed out of this place and, and nurtured by the pastors that were here and, and sent out. And then we went into the second phase, which was in Russia and uh, planting churches. We, as far as we know, we planted the first church in history up in the far, far northeastern part of Chukotka. Russia up there across from Nome. And other churches were planted as a result of that ministry, about six. And they're, they're, the, the church we planted is still going strong, that we started in 92. It's still going and still ministering out in the villages of, of that part of Russia. Uh, then in 2004, the Lord directed us to move down to Singapore, and that was another phase where we became just heavily immersed in Bible school administration that uh, was... Um, integral to what we're doing now in what I call stage four, and that is we turned all those Bible schools over to other people that, that uh, most of them we had trained. And uh, now, uh, about six years ago, almost seven years ago, I, I went back to school and got a master's degree of theology. We just, my wife and I both had such a witness in our spirits, we sh- I should do this, we weren't sure why. Uh, didn't know what the outcome would be. Um, I really felt I was too old to be asked to teach in a in a seminary, and um, but we just f- had a leading. I actually backed out of it a few times, and my wife kept coming back, telling me, "I think you need to do it." And yeah. and so uh, we just pursued that. I uh, tried to tell the school I can't do it. I said, and it's too expensive. And they said, well, we'll give you our best scholarship and all this. So we did it. And then after that, I I got into the doctoral program, a doctor of ministry program. So uh, one thing I can tell you, I've been able to to confirm something that I have suspected all along, and that is that I don't know very much. (laughs) And I can tell you after almost seven years, I've found out how little I know, how big God is, that God is God and I am not. But what happened as a result of that, it had, has opened a door now where I'm ministering primarily to pastors in Southeast Asia. You know, in a Bible school, typically you might have 10% of the population, the student population, are called to pulpit ministry. And that's great because it does minister to people all across the board, people that need being built up and strengthened. But I really felt that at this stage and phase of our ministry that I needed to be training pastors. And particularly... 
because of my upbringing and my background. I was a lawyer before I went into ministry, and uh, my father was a grammarian, knew Latin and Hebrew, and and uh, I, at high school I had Latin and I had Greek, and then in law law school is seminary without the Bible. Uh, <laughs> It, 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 it is really just in-depth study of understanding the words on the page, if I can put it simply. And so I had a real desire to train young ministers how to read the Bible in, in depth. Because what would happen many times is that people begin skimming across the surface like skating on ice. And, and, uh, and, and they can get thin, if you know what I mean. They, 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 they can't pull very deeply anymore to uh, preach the word. And then I, I also myself began seeking the Lord about 15 years ago. Uh, having been a lawyer, you train to look objectively at your case. And I began to look objectively at my ministry. It was something also that I learned from a senior minister, the founder of the Bible school that I went to, where from time to time he would take a look at his ministry and just go before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anything you know I need to do differently? And I began to do that with my own ministry because I didn't see my sermons in the Bible. I didn't see where my sermons sounded like the apostle sermons or like Jesus' sermons. And I was curious about that. And I began to seek the Lord and ask him, Lord, are my sermons like your sermons? Are, are my sermons sound like the apostle sermons? Because if not, you know, we need to make an adjustment here. And that's when it first began to, uh, I began to become acquainted with certain phrases that had been in the Bible all along, like uh, Paul saying, I want to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. What does that mean? Uh, He said, uh, Philip went down to Samaria and he, he preached Christ there. And I thought, well, how do you do that for 50 minutes? Let alone 52 Sundays of the year. How, what exactly, what do you mean? This is the way lawyers think, by the way. What do you mean, preach Christ? I know ordinary people can figure that out much faster. It takes us 15 years. What does that mean? What did that mean biblically? And uh, I, 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 one day it dawned on me. Um, now, now, let me be clear about something. The Bible is full of principles. It has principles. Uh, there are commandments. There are uh, precepts. The Bible's got a lot of the, that. It's all that's all important. But but first and foremost, and Paul laid out principles and precepts and commandments and so on. But first and foremost, he said, "I preach Christ and Him crucified." And everything he taught came under that umbrella of Christ and Him crucified. And so it took me some years and some study to understand what, what does this mean? And I discovered that, that this was not a new concept. I mean, obviously it goes back to Paul, but it was something that the, the church fathers had thought about after the apostles. It was something very major in the minds of the, in the Reformation. And that this is part of our DNA, our legacy as members of the body of Christ. It is our message. The, the word of the cross is the power of God. And, and the gospel is the power of God. And that, so that's what I'm doing with these young ministers. I'm teaching them how to read the scriptures deeply with an understanding of how to proclaim Christ. And, uh, and I'm having a ball doing that. It is, it is phase four and just loving it. Just a few weeks ago, I, was, I go back and forth to the island of Borneo frequently. And I was invited by two sister seminaries there to, to train pastors there and to teach my course I call it advanced biblical preaching or road to Emmaus workshop whatever you want to call it and um, I I just love those guys these are tribal pastors many of them uh, three generations ago their families were headhunters so uh, I consider them not only my students but my friends not only my friends but my teachers I learn a lot from them they're brilliant they're deep and I was in the jungle just uh a few weeks ago on Borneo, it was hot, it was sticky, and um, I am not a jungle certified missionary. Some of you may be, but uh, I'm a lawyer from the city, and it's a, it's a marvelous thing that I would even go to the bush in Alaska, you know, and do that. You talk about the two most unlikely people to do that. It would be the banker, my wife. I, I, when I married her, she was a banker, and I was a lawyer. But, you know... They were telling me just two weeks before I was on the campus that a python got in the hen house. 
And the python, you know, I'm, I'm, in, a, I'm in a house for teachers on stilts, and, and I'm alone in that house. Have you ever been to the jungle? You have? Really? It is loud. I don't know about the jungles you've been in, but this one was noisy. I'm telling you, three, four hours, really, really, really loud. All kinds of critters and noises. And when you're alone in a house like that, it, you know, can play little few tricks on you. And the crocodiles are in the river not far away. They eat people. <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and at night, to, to use the bathroom, I have to go outside briefly. And, and I, we're up on stilts. And uh, first of all, let me tell you about the python in the hen house. Uh, The python ate some chicken. And the python got into the hen house, but his belly was distended, and he couldn't get out of the hen house. And he tried, but he got stuck. He couldn't get out, and he couldn't get back in. I imagine he was one frustrated uh, python. Uh, the lady of the, the, the house, she's like an instructor, or one of the instructors, uh, the, the instructor's spouse, I can't remember, uh, which th- this is on campus. The guy that was telling me this, uh, bro- this brother told me she came out in the morning, discovered the python man house. And I said, well, was she frightened? He said, oh, no, 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 she likes python. So she called the young man and they, they, they killed it and grilled it. And they had saute that day. <laughs> Uh, that was one barbecue I was very glad I missed. And so uh, from there, I went to Nunavut, Canada, which is the northernmost province of Canada. I just came back from there a few days ago, up on the western shores of Hudson Bay. It's one of the coldest places on the planet in winter. I got there just before winter broke. They were having snow the other day. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm relieved to get out of the jungle away from pythons. I don't know about you, but I don't care for pythons. I'm just not a fan of them. And I'm thinking, well, this is great. There's no snakes up north, right? I'm relieved. And so we're there, and the pastor is telling me now. He says, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. He said, "Um, we're on a polar bear migration route, and there's polar bears coming through town. So he said, um, if you go out for a walk in the evening, he said, be careful. I don't know what that looks like, actually. I don't know how you be careful when you've got a polar bear stalking you. I don't know what that means if you come around the, the, the corner and there's a polar bear that meets you. I do know that like crocodiles, they eat people. And uh, I just said, I'm not planning to go out on on it. I'm going to just stay here. So then we went from there to Florida to visit our daughter in uh, beautiful beaches in northern Florida, uh, west of Jacksonville. Those are the most beautiful beaches I've seen anywhere in the world. And so, you know, you think, this is great. We're in Florida. It's 85, 90 degrees. There's a brown bear in the neighborhood. Black bear, black bear. Yeah, black bear. I couldn't believe it in Florida. And their neighbors are saying, be careful, there's a black bear in the neighborhood. So anyway, I, I, I think we're safe here in the Matsu Valley. <laughs> yeah, as you can see, God takes the weak things to use them. So our scripture tonight is uh, two of them, 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then Ephesians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, this is the English standard. uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love having predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It was just about a year ago, I was reading an article in the the paper, and it was about a little town in Nebraska called North Platte, Nebraska. Have you ever been there to North Platte? Have you really? Well, I'd never heard of it before. And... um, has a population of about 12,000 people, and apparently, I guess it's a railroad hub for trains going east and west. Um, the article, it said that starting in December of 1941, the people of North Platte, there were troop trains. Yeah. 
the trains were going, the guys that were, were shipping out for the, the Pacific Theater would obviously be heading west, and the trains would stop in North Platte for fuel and water and all kinds of things. And the, the guys that were shipping out to the European front, they were going east, and so there were trains coming into North Platte. And starting in December 1941, the people of North Platte voluntarily, they did this on, you know, as volunteers, they met every train up to 23 trains a day from 5 a.m. to past midnight. They had about 3,000 to 5,000 soldiers per day. They never missed a train. They never missed a soldier. They fed 6 million soldiers by the end of the war used not one cent of government money. They did not ask for or receive any government finances. And uh, so come last summer, 2018, the Arkansas Army National Guard was doing a training exercise up in Wyoming. And they had to get the soldiers back to Arkansas after the training. And they looked at the map. It turned out they were busing them back, and it turned out North Platte is the best place to stop and feed them and rest. And they called the mayor of North Platte and said, hey, have you got a restaurant that could, you know, make enough sandwiches for uh, 21 buses over two days? And uh, the mayor said, we can do it. And all the people, again, volunteered. No, no, they would not accept uh, the funds that the army offered them to do this. They just said, this is what we do here. So there were 21 buses over two days. And as the soldiers stepped off the buses, they were greeted by lines of cheering people, holding signs of, of thanks, you know, which, which touches us. We have three kids in the military. We've got one, one son, our oldest boy is in the, the Lord's army. He's a pastor in Singapore. And we've got you know, a daughter in the Air Force. We've got a son in the Army Reserves who fought as a Marine. Uh, and we've got another son who's a, a lieutenant, a commissioned lieutenant in the, the Coast Guard. So this is very touching. They, uh, they serve sandwiches, salads, churches, church groups, baked pies and brownies and cookies and so on. There was one soldier, uh, it was his 21st birthday, and one of the women volunteers said this. They, they had birthday cake for him. And she said, when I gave him his cake, he told me it was the first birthday cake he'd ever had in his life. And uh, when she heard that, she choked up, obviously. You know, you think, first ever birthday cake for a 21-year-old. How... Could it happen? What's, what's going on with his family if he had one, if he even had one? Um, you know, when people wish us happy birthday, what we hear is, we're glad you were born. We're glad you're here. Uh, you're loved and wanted. And according to the scriptures we read tonight, God celebrated your birthday before the foundation of the world Amen. because that's when he chose you. And some of you may be sitting here hearing for the first time God say to you, I loved you before you were born. I've wanted you forever. You know, when we were in Russia, one of the saddest things we ever witnessed during the 12 years that we lived there were the babies in one particular orphanage. And I want to say, uh, on behalf of the, the workers at that orphanage, this was a time when things were extremely difficult in Russia. The government had had a radical change. Uh, the currency lost value tremendously. Uh, they were in a very hard way, uh, many of the people. And... Um, this orphanage was very sterile. Uh, there were none of the colorful pictures that you might 
see in a children's hospital in the United States or or in other countries. I think they were doing, the, the, the folks there, the staff were doing the best they could with what they had. But it appeared to us they, are prob- they were vastly understaffed. And uh, the thing about these babies is their, their faces were pale and drawn, and their eyes stared vacantly. They were silent, unresponsive. They did not squirm or make baby noises or even cry. And my wife remarked, it's as though they know that no one will come, even if they do cry. Their little bottoms were red. Their bodies had sores. They were rarely held or shown affection. And without knowing what they knew, those little babies felt what it was like not to be chosen or wanted. When I practiced law, in fact, here in the valley and in other places, I went to court uh, fairly regularly. And courtrooms are, by and large, unhappy places. But one of the happiest things I ever witnessed in a courtroom was uh, an adoption that I was handling. Nothing can describe, as as you parents know, the thrill of um, seeing your own children born. But in terms of the sheer joy and elation that comes with the birth of a child, adoption matches it. That courtroom felt like a delivery room. I, I... you know, you got the expectant parents eagerly waiting to receive this child into their family and make him their own. But obviously, adoption is different from a natural childbirth in two important respects. First of all, it's not a biological uh, birth. But secondly, and m- more to the point, unlike birth parents who are sometimes surprised to find that, you know, we have another little bundle of joy on the way. And we're going to have to support this child for the next 18 to 25 years, depending. And uh, how are we going to make ends meet and so on and so forth? All those questions come to us until the baby's born and then we realize how foolish we were. But adoptive parents, it's different because they have made a purposeful, intentional choice of a particular child to be their own. Just as God chose us before the foundation of the world. I don't know if you've thought much about those scriptures, but you very quickly reach the limits of your own human understanding of God and the things of God. When I was very young in the Lord, I thought I was entitled to know I would understand everything in the Bible. It was just my right. And uh, I'm so happy I'm free of that and have have come to realize that God is way bigger than, than we are. Uh, we do not have the brain capacity to, to understand everything there is about God. And, and you know, I, I like what one preacher said. He said, uh, if God is who he says he is, uh, he's going to say some things that you don't understand. And one of the things that, that I love about these verses that, that uh, again, show you your limits is it says he chose you before the foundation of the world. The foundation of the world is the creation of the material universe. And time, your watch, the clock, it's all based on the physical universe. Without astronomical bodies, uh, moon, sun, stars, we have no way of measuring time. And so before the foundation of the world literally means before time began. And that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 1-9. He says, before, literally, before time's eternal, God chose you to be holy and blameless uh, uh, according to his own purpose and grace. And, you know, what does that mean that he chose you before time began? It, 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 it gets interesting very quickly when you think about who God is, because number one, God's eternal. Now, we'll, we will exist forever, but we're not eternal in the sense that God is, because God had no beginning, and we all had a beginning. But God had no beginning. He's always been. And then the second thing that the Bible tells us about God is he never changes. 
And just to use human speech, and by the way, that's the only speech we have, and, and we've learned that speech on planet Earth in a time-space continuum, right? We've, we have to relate to time and space, but God's outside of time and space. And I think this is why when Paul went to the third heaven, he saw things that were impossible to utter and describe with, with human speech that's developed uh, on this planet. And so when you think about God, the Bible tells us he never changes. And, and so he's eternal. He never changes. And the third, another thing that the Bible tells us is that he knows everything. He knows everything about everything. And he has always known everything about everything. And for God to know something new suddenly would mean he changed. And he never changes. And for God to make a decision suddenly would mean he changed. So you put all that together, and in a way that I cannot comprehend, it tells me that God has always known me. And because I'm in Christ, I know that he has chosen me. And apparently, this this choice was from all eternity. God doesn't wake up in the morning but if he did he would never wake up and say hmm I've never thought of that before he wouldn't wake up someday and say you know I think I'll choose Joe because that would mean he changed do you understand that I don't understand it but it says it that's what the Bible says that he chose us before time began from eternity past Knowing this, that we are thoroughly, fully, purposefully chosen by our Father. We are the children of God. We've been born of the Spirit of God. If Christ is our Lord and Savior and and we are in Him, then we have been chosen in Him. It is an anchor for the soul in the storms of life. It is an anchor for the soul in times of sickness, in storms of sickness, in storms of uh, sorrow, in storms of trouble, in storms of rejection, in storms of, of rejection. It is an anchor for the soul to know that we have been chosen. You have been purposefully, intentionally chosen by God. Because we are in Christ. And this is a decision that he made long before you came into being. Before you did good or bad. There's something about being wanted and about being chosen. It's visceral. We all want to be wanted. We all need to be needed. We can't live happily without it. Being wanted makes us feel loved. Not feeling wanted makes us feel unloved. And very often things happen in life to suggest to us that we're not wanted, that we're not loved, and things don't always work out the way we thought they would. Sometimes the people we think would love us the most seem to love us the least. And that that can fool you. That can, those kinds of things can trick you into thinking that you've not been wanted and you've not been chosen. But you've been chosen if you're, if you're a child of God. You've been chosen by the most important person in the universe. And everyone else is an infinitely distant second. And when, when, we, when we understand that, we are rooted and grounded in love. The love that surpasses all understanding. Rooted and grounded in love. You know, uh, why, why, why do we lose sight of that? Well, I, as I said, we go through things in life. And you, there's all f- different forms of, of rejection and trouble and difficulty. 
where we begin to measure ourselves by ourselves, by our circumstances, and we forget that Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, has chosen me. And as soon as I say those words, I'll tell you, there's just such a peace that comes over my soul. What does it matter what someone else thinks about you? If God be for you, who can be against you? Uh, Sometimes, though, it's a result of looking to someone or something other than God for our sense of fulfillment. For example, our ministry. We, we can look to uh, what we perceive as success or lack of success. We can begin to measure ourselves, look at ourselves in our profession or our ministry or, or whatever. And we begin to calculate uh, our, our worth in the eyes of God by that. And, and if you're ever on Facebook... They need to come up with a vaccine for people that read Facebook, an anti-envy vaccine, because everybody on Facebook is perfect. If you ha- I don't know if you know that, but everybody who's on Facebook lives perfect lives. They don't have any trouble at all. Uh, and it's easy to get Facebook envy, seeing how they all have perfect families and perfect marriages and perfect jobs and perfect vacations. <laughs> it's just wonderful. Um, you know, and you begin to calculate your uh, self-worth in, in the light of what's going on with everyone else. Um, I think sometimes we just, we're human, and we miss it. We make mistakes. And, um, you know, you, you can begin to wonder, you know, I mean, theologically, doctrinally, you understand God loves me. But... In your heart, you can begin to wonder. You can begin to wonder, does he even like me? Does he like me? He has to love me. He's God, but does he like me? Does he want to be with me? I remember one time I was rushing off to Bible school to teach, and I was running late. I was doing my devotions. And, um, boy, I was having a wonderful time in the presence of the Lord. And I... I got up to go, and I felt just the Holy Spirit tug on my heart to stay very strongly. I had this very strong impression, like as if the Lord was saying, um, don't go. You know how you might say to a friend, a dear friend, don't, don't go. Could, couldn't you just stay a little while longer? I wept. I said, Lord, I, I, did, I had no idea you felt that way about me. I can understand you would feel that way about, you know, Pastor Peter or <laughs> some of our other ministers. Here. But me, we're talking me, Lord. You know, I was aware that he was actually glad to be with me. Um, you know, um, sometimes sincere people wanting to help us, we, we will open our hearts up to them and say, you know, I just... I just don't feel worthy. And they'll come and say, oh, no, don't think that way. You are worthy. You are worthy. You're a good person, and you're doing a good job. And, and you know, don't think that way. But, you know, actually, we're not. Who's, who said we were, we were worthy to be, to, to, for Jesus to die for us? Uh, he didn't save you because you were worthy. He saved you because you weren't. If we were worthy, he he wouldn't have had to die in our place. Um, You know, in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, it says, it speaks about the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And in Romans 5, 6, 8, and 10, it says that God chose us while we were weak, ungodly sinners and enemies. That's love. That is an other kind of love. That is an an unearthly love. That is not a love that originates with human beings. As long as, as we think, well, there was something in me, some spark of goodness, some, some special thing. God saved me because I was special. God saved me because I'm sincere. God saved me because I'm just adorable. 
No, I'm sorry, you weren't. You were an enemy. Hello, enemy. <laughs> you were ungodly. Do you know what ungodly means? Un is the opposite of godly. That means everything God is, you weren't. Think about how God, good God is, how holy he is, how pure he is, how loving he is. And, and, and the Bible says uh, you were un that. You know, when this began to dawn on me, I would read uh, scriptures like this. And I tell you, I was just in disbelief. I was in denial. I mean, I always considered myself a nice sinner. And when I began to see this, I, I'm, I'm sorry to have to quote Star Wars from the pulpit. But I don't know if you remember when Luke Skywalker found out that Darth Vader was actually his dad and how he reacted. <laughs> I said, no. And that's what I when I saw this, I thought, no, no, not me. I'm cute and lovable and precious. You're so precious. You're so adorable. No, no, you weren't. You were weak, ungodly, a sinner. Sinner's bad. A sinner, not good, not good. No. And an enemy of God. If you're an enemy of God, you're on the wrong side. You're on the wrong team. This is when God loved us. This is how he demonstrated his love for us. While we were dead in sin. While we were estranged from God. He didn't love you because you were so lovable. Hey, keep, keep your seatbelt on because this will turn out all right. There's liberty in this, actually. Great liberty and great depth of love. And furthermore, it's true. God did not love you because you were so worthy of being loved or so lovable. God makes people lovable because he loves them. And the initiative for that comes solely and wholly from him. And it is this strange decision, strange in the sense it's strange to earthly minds, that he did that. It's really incomprehensible. Who has known the mind of the Lord? You know... If our being chosen by God were to depend in any degree upon our worthiness, we would have good reason to feel insecure. If his love for us were to depend in any degree upon our performance, remember he saved you and called you with a holy calling, not according to your works, but according to his own purpose and grace before time began, before you did good or or bad, if his love were to depend in any degree upon our performance, we would be in trouble. Amen. Because God's standard is perfection. You know, if God loved us, if he loved you because you were so special, then what happens at those times when you're not so special? Have you ever had any moments in your life when you weren't so special? Amen. Uh if he chose us because we're sincere and well-meaning, if that were true, what would happen to us at those times when we're not so sincere and well-meaning? You ever had a moment like that? Yeah. You, ever, you ever, you know, said, paid someone a compliment that you didn't really mean, but you didn't know what to say? That's called lying, by the way, but that's a different sermon. What would happen if our being chosen by God and loved by God, were somehow dependent upon us, we'd be in a world of hurt. Even though we know better, we tenaciously cling to the notion that what we do has something to do with whether we merit God's love. And we say we believe the love that God has for us, 1 John four sixteen. We say we believe the love that God has for us, but what we really believe is what one Scottish preacher called contract love. What's the difference between contract love and covenant love? Well, you have to pay for contract love. Uh, and the price is steep. You have to pay for contract love, and you pay for it with your works. And you, and you earn God's love, and you merit it. Which means that uh, 
to merit God's perfect love, you have to be perfect. All the time. 24-7. Every day. All day. Not sure you really want to relate to God on the basis of contract love. There was no exchange. There was no quid pro quo, as they say. There was no this for that. Uh, God was not obligated to choose us. Do you know he would have been fully just and fully, he would not have diminished his, he is love. He could have not saved us and still been love. We have no footing on which to indignantly say, you had to save me. No, he didn't. He didn't. And it makes the fact that he loves us marvelous, amazing, mind-boggling, and completely freeing. And it is what produces the fruits of the Spirit and holiness real holiness and love born out of the Spirit of God, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated as the eternally begotten Son of God who loved his Father, has loved his Father for all eternity uh, out of no motive less worthy than that he simply loves his Father. He obeyed him perfectly, not out of slavish fear, not out of compulsion, but simply because he loves the Father. That's holiness. That's a walk of love and integrity and perfection. And that is born in the spirit of those who first received that love. We love because he first Loved. He's the initiator. It begins with God. Um, we weren't even around when he, made, when he did this. When he, you know, formulated the plan of, of redemption. I, I don't even know how you talk about that. When you're talking about someone who's eternal, who never changes. He's always been God. He's always known what he's known He's always known you, always. What does always mean? Always is such a weak word. Eternally. When did he choose you? Eternally. When did he set his heart on you? Eternally. Amen. You think he's going to be talked out of it by some dumb mistakes? By some rebellion? He knew all that before he chose you. That, that's almost scary in a way. In that scary good, scary love. He knew that. And, and he, he chose us when we were in the mess we were in, not to leave us in the mess we were in. It's a holy calling. This kind of love lifts us out of our own carnality to walk in true spirituality, which isn't showy, it's not flashy, it's not, it's not going on and on about visions that we've seen, as Paul said, but it is a true spirituality, true walk of love. So well, why did God choose you anyway? Well, uh, it should give you great assurance to know it has nothing to do with anything that you've done. But we get a hint about this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Moses told Israel, he said, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Now get this. I love this. Here's why God loved them and chose them. He said, it wasn't because you were more in number that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Uh, but it is because the Lord loves you. <laughs> Do you get that? Why did, why did the Lord love Israel and choose Israel? Because the Lord loved Israel. Why do I love you? Because I love you. You see that? You know, I, I get an inkling of this from my wife, actually. Because she's... She's got German and Dutch, and I don't. 
My sister is married to a doctor, and they did a DNA test. We are 98% Irish. I, there's not many people in the world that are 98% anything, but I'm 98% Irish. My wife has a lot of German, German and Dutch. And I tell you, there is such a, the image of God that I see in my wife, in, in her ability when she settles on a godly issue of she's settled. There's, there's just no rehashing it, no double-mindedness. Uh, in all seriousness, a lot of our stability in ministry came from the, uh, the other half here. And I get a picture of what God is like, what it, what it means to be a purposeful, decisive person. When God sets his love on you, you are not going to talk him out of it. He has set his heart on you. He has purposed to love you. It's purposeful. It's intentional. And it's wholly apart from what you've done. Well, he said, I I loved you, Israel. I loved you and chose you because I loved you and chose you. Full stop. Um, God loves no other. God knows no love other than unconditional love. I used to make a point of saying, well, it's the, it's, uh, you know, we experience the unconditional love of God that, and that we do. But in a sense, when you're talking about God's love, that's almost like saying love, love. It's, it's redundant because God's love is by definition unconditional. It's not contract love. We don't earn it. It's bestowed on us. He chose us to save us. So what, what, what thing can we go through and he will not help us? What earthly father who loves his children? I know, I know there's some that for one reason or another, they, they, they've abandoned families and that sort of thing. But, but what earthly father who loves his children will not do anything and everything to help that child in the time of trouble? And that's just flesh and blood. But we're talking about our Heavenly Father. You know, uh, to be chosen by God is to be loved by God. And 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because He first loved us. Notice that loving others comes after first being loved by Him. And Jesus said in John fifteen sixteen, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Notice that bearing fruit comes after first being chosen by him. I think Martin Luther was right when he said, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day because we forget it. Every morning, we forget it. It's like combing your hair. You have to do it every day, right? And, and um, you know, this gospel... What is this gospel? It's that because Jesus died, we've died. Because he was buried, we've been buried. Because he's been raised, we've been raised. Now, because we have received Christ and accepted him, because he's well-pleasing to the Father, we're well-pleasing to the Father. And knowing that we've been chosen by God from eternity past, we never have to feel alone or unwanted in this world again. Knowing that you have been chosen by God wholly apart from your works sets you free to walk in the good works that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in when he chose you before time began. This is gospel. This is gospel that motivates good works. It motivates holiness out of a pure motive. And that motive is, I am loved. I have been chosen by God. And, and he chose to save me before time began, before I did good or bad, not according to my works. So no matter where we've missed it, what bad decisions we've made or good decisions or, or mistakes or sins that, that we have, you know, he has forgiven and we've acknowledged to him. Listen, None of that can annul 
the choice that God made when he called you with the holy calling according to his own purpose and grace. I want to just encourage us tonight to keep that in our hearts. To know that. You know, when you're sharing with someone about the Lord, it sure makes a difference where you're sharing from. If there, this reservoir is in your heart and you know that you are loved by the God of heaven and earth, that he chose you, whether your flesh likes it or not, you know what I mean? It makes a big difference when you're telling people about Jesus. When you're facing your own life circumstances, I know we all have things that we deal with. You know, we all have situations that uh, are on our prayer list or working on, or we very often have things in our own lives we don't, we don't understand. We don't know how to emotionally how to deal with some things. Can't figure that out, but I'll tell you what, it starts there. No matter what it is, no matter what that situation is, it starts with knowing that your Father God has chosen you. If you if you are in Christ, He He's chosen you. And that's the turning point. That begins to to change things. That changes the equation. That that's that's a game changer. You don't have to understand how God is going to resolve that situation or change this situation. I'm sure that you have experienced this in your lives. The longer you walk with God, the more you realize how dependent you are upon him moment by moment. And one of the things that I've struggled with in my own life is my brain. Not that I'm that, that smart. I had a teacher that informed me that I just had a B average brain or whatever. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Smith. That humbles me. <laughs> uh, basically, she's saying, you're not, that, you're not as smart as you think you are. And she was right. But it didn't stop me from trying to figure everything out. And, you know, we can call that by different nice names like, well, I just like to think things out. I like to understand it and figure it out. It's really called worry. It's called worry and anxiety and sin, (laughs) you know, because it's a sin to worry. You're not supposed to worry. Um, And... We can dress it up in all kinds of ways and sanctify it, but it's not, it's not holy. It's actually idolatry. It's rank unbelief to worry or have a, a, a deal, a situation in your life that we let confound us. And, and I've looked at some doozies. I mean, it's hard to beat a lawyer's brain at figuring out all the angles of a problem that just how bad it really is. That, that's, a, that's what we get paid the big bucks to do, is to figure out everything that can go wrong and might go wrong. And if it hasn't gone wrong, it still might go wrong. My family persecutes me because I like to have a contingency plan for a lot of things. Even using our treadmill in Russia in, when it was stored in a very, very cold room, which distorted the tension on the belt. And so you get on that treadmill and it could start up suddenly and throw you so I tried to teach I won't you know present company excluded um, I try to talk to my children about you know you got to be prepared when this thing goes because it could throw you you know and there's a window out there and boy did I get persecuted and it's still a joke from 20 years ago I like to have a contingency plan I like to figure things out so it's very very easy for me to look at situations and be flustered and frustrated and, and angry because I can't see any way to fix this or figure this out. And I, th- I thank God that he's helped me to let go of the brain. And it's, it's all right not to know. It's best. You don't have to know. You just trust him. 
And if he's chosen you, how is he not going to help you? How, how, is, how does that work? How can he choose you and not help you? You don't have to know. If there's a situation and you can't figure it out, it's because you're not supposed to figure it out. You're at that junction of life where you just trust. And that's faith. I remember something a great man of God said. This really blessed me. He said, just not worrying is a form of prayer because the Bible says, be anxious for nothing. Just be anxious for nothing. And I have to remind myself of that. You know, Paul said, basically in Philippians 4, rejoice about everything. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. And then he said, and do everything that I've taught you. And the peace of God and the God of peace will be with you. (laughs) Rejoice about everything. Don't worry about anything. That means there's nothing to worry about. Doesn't that, you know, if you're a professional worrier like me, doesn't that just make you mad? Yeah, it's like, that's not fair, you know. Don't worry about anything. That's amazingly simple. But, but the, the flesh rises up. I mean, that, that is a death struggle for some of us to lay that down. But, uh, you know, when you do, it, it seems that God is able to start working it out. And the answers come from the most unusual directions. Things that, yeah, can be right in front of you or things you just never thought it would come from that direction. You racked your brain, racked your brain. How are we going to fix this? How am I going to fix that? You know, it could be a situation outside of you. It could be a situation inside of you. It could be emotional. It could be physical. How, how, how? But I've found this. You know, I've come to love questions almost more than the answers. Because when you ask God, ask him, well, Lord, would you show me how? And when and so on. That's when God will talk. God will work. Not, 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 not necessarily right on the spot. This is not McDonald's. You know, you go to the squawk box and order and they talk back to you. No, 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 no. The, the, even in the waiting period, even in the time when God seems to be silent, there's growth happening. There's development happening. There's maturity happening. And, and we, we, we're like a, we become like a weaned child because we're in trust. And trusting our Father. It's just wonderful. Every little thing, sister. I'm looking at you. You have glasses. I have glasses. Yes, you just turned your head. (laughs) I'm talking to you. You know, if the shoe fits, wear it. I'm just saying, if this, I just sense to tell you that. That uh, and and it not just her, but for all of us, and I'm preaching to me too. That uh, you don't have to know how; just tell Father God about it, and thank Him, praise Him, trust Him. You've chosen me. I'm your responsibility. I'm your baby, Lord, and I'm looking to you. I thank you. I don't have to know how or when or what. I just praise you and walk. About in praise. And and praise him. Just praise him. You don't even have to feel good when you're praising him. You don't have to feel a thing. No, it's just a matter of the Bible says so often rejoice always, be thankful always, pray always. Wow. I mean, that's, that's, that's Christianity 101, and that's uh, nuclear physics Christianity. It's all right in there. That's advanced Christianity, beginning Christianity. It just works in there. That's a daily walk with God, just choosing constantly to remind ourselves, well, I'm just rejoicing, Lord, not, not letting the weeds creep in, the weeds of worry and anxiety, but... But, but put the weed killer on it by rejoicing, rejoicing in him and being thankful. Lord, I, I want to be a thankful person. And, and, and remember to be thankful. Be thankful for the people around you, brothers and sisters and people that God's brought into your life. There's so many things. There's people in this room that have done so much for us 
that uh, changed our lives. Changed our lives. We wouldn't be where we were, you know. And, and there's lots of people in our lives like that that we could be thankful to God for. And all the good things he's done, we, we have a tendency, don't we, to look at what hasn't happened or what we're still waiting on. But I tell you, praise and thanksgiving is a magnet. It just attracts the blessings of God. It takes us out of ourselves and, and puts our attention on the Lord. Well, I think I've kept you long enough. I, I, we want you to come back. Uh, so uh, I think the services are officially at 6.30 p.m. tomorrow night. I'm, do, do I turn this over to you, Pastor Peter? I'll just do that. Let's just pray, though, before we go. Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit to settle upon us, to seal this, establish us in it. Let us be thankful and happy, rejoicing. Whether the the thing is done yet or not, whether it's happened or not, we just are thankful and rejoicing. And as questions and problems come to mind, we just pray always. We immediately lift it up to you, Lord, with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. And we just thank you. We don't try to figure it out with our minds. We keep our minds away from it. You said, don't worry. Don't worry about anything. That means there's nothing we should worry about. Not even that. Or that, or that. Nothing. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, lift it up to, the, to God in prayer with thanksgiving. And then if we, as we do these things, Paul said, the God of peace will be with us, and the peace of God will be in us. Father, thank you that you chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before you in love. You've called us, you saved us, and you've called us, separated us unto yourself with a holy calling, not according to our works. Help us get a hold of that. But according to your own purpose and grace, which was given to us before time began. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen, Amen.